agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hugged the government love. The government hugged the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at North Kentucky University. Joining me today is political and policy analyst Kristen Matheny. Hey, Kristen. Hey, Mike. How are you? I am hanging in there. How about you? I am also hanging in there doing our best with <laughs> yeah. all, everything going on. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, before we start today, I just want to quickly thank uh, Phil... Wayfarer and everyone else who read over and commented on the first three chapters of uh, my book in progress, the, the Reluctant Detectives, kind of a fun little diversion, I think, with all the serious stuff going on. And uh, just to let people know, if you'd like to follow along as sort of the plot thickens, at least I hope the plot will thicken, and even comment on the book and make suggestions. I have put everything in a Google Doc that's set up for reader suggestions and comments. It's been great kind of doing this along with some listeners. I've really appreciated it. And uh, you'll find the link in today's show notes. So thanks a lot, guys. I want to let everyone know about something new that we're going to be doing for supporters. You know, with coronavirus moving all of my classes at NKU online, I'm having to create a bunch of audio lectures for students. And I thought I'd share this with supporters. Now, right now, my discussion of Congress is up there and in that I talk about structure, leadership, campaign finance, gerrymandering, demographics, the legislative process, filibusters, polarization, all kinds of stuff. Future posts are going to get into the presidency and the executive branch, the Supreme Court, public policy, the 2020 elections, and some proposals to change the structure of American political institutions. And of course, in addition to that, if you're a supporter, you get that full-length bonus episode every week, in addition to a bunch of other things at various levels to check it out. Just go to patreon.com slash politics, guys. And again, I can't emphasize this enough. We will never keep content from anyone due to financial constraints. So if you would like all of our bonus content, but you can't afford to be a supporter right now, we totally get that. Just email me, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will be happy to get you set up. And one more quick thing, in response to that share on Twitter contest I announced last week, one listener commented, uh, can't you do something where everyone who takes the time to share the podcast gets something as opposed to me having a one in a hundred chance of getting a benefit? And, you know, that seemed like a pretty good point, actually. And so I decided to change things up a little bit. Now, throughout the month of, it is April. Yeah, it's April. That's right. Gosh. Um, everyone who shares an episode of the show on Twitter and includes a short message about why people should listen, why they like the show, as well as making sure to include the, our Twitter name uh, at Politics Guys so we can see who's doing what, will get access to the next Midweek Supporters exclusive full-length show. So when I see your tweet, I'll just DM you with information on how to access the upcoming show. So this is quick and simple, and everyone benefits. It's kind of a win-win, which is always a beautiful thing. So I have a pretty good idea where we're going to start today, Kristen, and why don't you go ahead and get us kicked off? (laughs) Might as well just jump right in. So um, there's a lot to talk about regarding everything uh, dealing with the COVID-19 situation. So many different angles and aspects. Um, Lots going on this week. Uh, We are experiencing some phenomenal cultural shifts. So sort of looking at things on a macro level. um, As those who are non-essential workers are practicing social distancing, I'm sure you are, I am. Um, I'm sure most of our listeners are unless they are essential workers. So lots of that going on. 
And there are a lot of other topics to discuss from uh, President Trump's extension of federal guidelines that are uh, he's recommending that people stay at home in place away from other people uh, for another 30 days. Of course, that's different from what was uh, being recommended a week or two ago. And um, we can also tie all of this into sort of the ever evolving statistics. It's really hard to keep track of everything. Most predictions have uh, hard hit areas peaking in numbers of those affected throughout mid to late April, um, some of them into early May. So we'll discuss that. And also we have some big shifts in the economy that really beg discussion. Um, jobless claims are rising. The Small Business Administration announced a paycheck protection program, which uh, many have begun applying for. And that was a, the applications for those begun yesterday. So we'll get into that. And of course, resources are being haggled over between cities, states and the federal government um, as everyone scrambles to stockpile you know, PPE, personal protective equipment, medical equipment, much more. And of course, we're going to talk about masks, because for a long time, we heard that masks were something that wouldn't prevent um, infection. Um, and, and now all of a sudden, there seems to be this rush for masks. So, you know, we have a lot to discuss, Mike. Um, but of course, we're going to start at sort of the, the macro level, and we're going to discuss the, the stay at home order first and some of the evolving statistics. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I'm gratified to see that almost all states now have stay-at-home orders. I think there are, at at this point, uh, and this is Saturday, we're recording this, five that have no stay-at-home orders only, and then there are another four that have them in parts of the state. And so I think that's a very positive thing. And I also, on another positive note, because almost all of what we're talking about by, you know, by necessity is pretty awful and negative stuff. I wanted to, without, without, you know, minimizing in any way the, the awfulness of this, I thought maybe some comparisons, some historical comparisons might kind of oh, nice. help people feel a little, I don't know, necessarily a little bit better. But so I did some comparisons with the 1918 and 1957 pandemics on a per capita, per capita death basis to kind of give a, you know, a sense of perspective. And so even if we if we include in not just the coronavirus uh, death uh, numbers and that the high end of that seems to be, uh, you know, a little over 200,000 now is what we're hearing. And uh, I should point out that even a month ago, people were talking about a million or more. And so in that sense, I think an underreported story is how a lot of those estimates all of a sudden have come down. It seems like the media, a lot of the media has forgotten about that. And I really think that's you know something we should point out. But even assuming those, let's say a high end estimate of 250,000 deaths, which is horrific and adding in the deaths that we're going to get from just the standard flu season, which, uh, you know, it looks like that might be uh, another 50,000 or so because we also have seasonal flu. Mm-hmm. It, 300,000 deaths combined, say, out of a population of right right now, we're around 331 million. Well, if we take a look at the 1957 flu pandemic, there were 116,000 who died in the U.S. out of a population of 172 million. And that's a per capita equivalent today of around that would be around 223,000. So that's, you know, that that was a little less severe if we add in the flu deaths and go again to the high end number what we're projecting. And that still is, you know, that's being pessimistic. But if we look back to 1918, there were 675,000 U.S. deaths out of a population of only 103 million. 
And that would be the per capita equivalent today of 2.17 million deaths. And again, this is not to minimize anything that's going on today, but it's to say that we certainly have been through things that are even worse and we have gotten through them and it's been rough for, for a few years or more. But, and I think we need to, in this time of anxiety, to keep that in mind is that it's going to be a while and there's going to be suffering and awfulness, but we will be okay. And I think it's important to hold on to that, which is why I wanted to start off by mentioning that. Yeah, I, I, um, it's funny because with everything, I think the, the overwhelming theme this week was just the amount of information and the fact that it changes constantly. I know, um, I was talking with you yesterday and I said, I feel like every day we have a new set of projections and a new set of statistics. And, and I feel like I can't really grasp my head around, you know, it's this person's fault or that person's fault or this person needs to be doing this better. This person's not doing enough because every single day those statistics change. And the one thing that brings me comfort is hearing statistics like the ones that you just said and sort of, you know, latching onto this idea that we have been through this, that, you know, communities and states and, and the, the nation um, has dealt with things in the past that weren't, I wouldn't say they mirror this situation, but very, very similar um, quarantines, lockdowns, things like yeah. that, and that we've, we've emerged successful in many ways. Um, and, and, you know, I think one of the things, and, and I, and I really wanted to bring this up, um, I think what, if anything, what this has given our nation and, and society in general is um, sort of this idea that technology, you know, it is, is incredibly important, but it's something, it's a useful tool. It's something we can use to, you know, link people together for networking, for work. I mean, I was thinking about um, H1N1, everything going on with H1N1. Was that 10, 11 years ago? Was that 2009? And, you know, I was I was thinking about the fact that if if this had happened um, then, you know, uh, working from home would not have been a possibility for, for most of us. Uh, networking and, and remaining in touch would not have been a possibility for most of us. And even 10 years before that, things like social media, Zoom, Slack, you know, the, these these incredible platforms that people used to stay in touch and work and be productive wouldn't have existed. So in a lot of ways, we're, we're, we're prepared for this. And that also brings me comfort is, is the fact that um, all of a sudden we've become reliant on technology. I mean, we're all so quick to sort of bash technology and say, oh, it's destroying society. But in a lot of ways, it's, it's helped us through this particular situation. And so I hope to see, um, at, you know, I, I, it's, you know, full disclosure, I work in a, in a tech field and, and, a, and I tend to be sort of STEM minded in a lot of ways. But, you know, um, the fact that so many people are building this new respect for technology and networking and things like yeah. that, I mean, it can be so powerful. And so I'm sort of keeping my eye on that prize. Maybe this will change the way we deal with technology. Maybe it'll change government's relationship with technology. Yeah, too. absolutely. And just you know, I know we're going to get into all these all other things you mentioned, but for me, the yeah. top story of the week really is these uh, mitigation social distancing efforts are working very well. You know, this week, Anthony Fauci said that more than one million Americans could become infected, but it's possible that efforts would keep that below that number. And it was, you know, beginning of or mid-March. People were saying, you know, 20, 40, 60 percent of Americans could become infected this year. And that's that's, that's a. That's an enormous difference, mm -hmm. you know, and I was one of those people who was, you know, doing the numbers and saying, my God, if 10% get infected and there's a 1% death rate, we're looking at something horrifically 
awful. And just this week, there was a new study from The Lancet, which is one of the most respected medical journals around, finding that the death rate uh, so far for COVID-19 has been around 0.66%, which is obviously a lot better than even that 1% number we're hearing a lot, and certainly a lot better than that 3.4% number that went around. And, And so I guess as you pointed out, Christy, you know, the, the data keeps on changing and numbers keep on changing because this is a novel thing, but it's, it's such a human tendency and the tendency of the media to focus on the absolute worst when, you know, and it's not to be, you know, Pollyanna-ish and focus on the absolute best and bury your head in the sand, but understand that maybe there's a middle ground in here and we need to make, I think, a conscious effort to keep that in mind when so much is pushing us toward uh, fear, anxiety, and in some cases, panic. So, yeah, but, and I, you know, I, I was, I was going to add that, um, you know, a lot of us who are, um, you know, p- political, politically inclined and, you know, who look at policy and examine policy, I think we look at everything going on, how divisive things have gotten. And, and I, I still see a lot of divisiveness, but some of my more partisan friends on either side of the aisle have sort of come to the middle and have started, um, you know, developing this attitude of like, okay, this is great. How are we going to work together? I've had people who wouldn't have otherwise agreed with, like, for example, the SBA loan, you know, rollout and things like that, who are suddenly saying, well, maybe this could work. So there's been a lot of out of the box thinking. Um, And again, you know, I'm not necessarily a Pollyanna type person. I like to look at the good side of things. I like to be optimistic, but it's, it's forced me to do the same thing. It's forced me to, you know, look at people who I wouldn't normally look at and say, okay, well, let's listen to what they have to say. And, and do just that. I'm, I'm encouraging it um, amongst my fellow Republican friends. So, you know, this, this is, this is, this could be positive, I think, if we seized upon it, like you yeah. said. But in the, at least in the, in the short term, it's understandably, I think, a bit of a, more than a bit of a mess. I mean, take, take, for instance, yeah. the SBA loan program. Uh, there, there were still plenty of banks who aren't really clear, you know, what's going on. I think it was, uh, was it, was it J.P. Morgan? I think said that. Yeah. Well, we're not really, we're not really ready to roll this out, and it's, it's understandable scaling up to this level so quickly. There are going to be huge problems, and not, not only that, but so many of the government's uh, computer data, data management systems, and the state level systems are old and creaky and haven't been updated and don't communicate well with each other. And so you put this additional load on them. And then there's the additional concern above that of hacking, uh, stealing personal information. And this is going to be even more of a concern with systems that are being quickly, quickly built up and can't be maybe tested and hardened as much. And, you know, this is I won't say this is a unique to the U.S. problem, but in other countries that have far more robust social safety nets, they already have larger systems in place who have to deal with bigger volumes, you know, relatively speaking. And so they don't have to scale up nearly as much as we do in the U.S. And when we're going from zero to 200 in almost no time at all, that's a lot, that's a lot more of a job than somewhat what some of these European countries are doing. And I know a lot of folks on the left are saying, well, why don't we do things like just send money directly to companies for you know paying employees and things like that? I think Denmark has been mentioned, some other countries. Well, in part, it's just we don't 
we don't have the inf- we don't have the governmental infrastructure to do that sort of thing and you know we're seeing the problems i think inherent in that because you know most small businesses i think and the average small business has like around 4 weeks they can get by but with even with this expedited loan program that's going to be pushing it uh, businesses are going to be lucky to get that relief in four weeks. And so this is the problem when you're trying to go from nothing to this incredibly universal almost uh, safety net system with so many people need that support. Right. And it, and we're dealing with um, a loan program that is that sort of blows your mind in terms of scope and in terms of size. So it's, it's a $349 billion program that was rolled out. And I remember um, I was watching uh, the, the press conference on, I believe it was Thursday night. And, um, you know, the, there was a lot of discussion about how this would work. They were going to open up um, the application process the following day. And of course the, the first place where my mind went was how is this going to happen just in terms of logistics 349 billion dollars and of course you know i i think it's a i think it's a great idea in terms of stimulating the economy i think it has a lot of um rightful um uh bipartisan support but yeah how how is this going to roll out and of course as as a lot of people predicted and and as i was predicting yesterday banks were overwhelmed i mean bank of america overwhelmed um and a lot of small business owners and uh people like that were being smart they were going to like smaller local banks i know uh my husband went to a smaller local bank to to try to get the loan so you know the 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 idea that we can just roll something out like this is is very very wishful thinking but i'm just not sure that um, that people realize the scale of a program like this yeah. and, and the number of small businesses. I mean, we're, and it's funny because when we think about small businesses, at the first place my mind goes is the business I work for, which is, I guess you could consider it like a mid-sized business. Um, you know, we have, uh, we have, well, we had 80 people working for us and, um, you know, there, there are other businesses about the same size, but, you know, a small business could be, you know, a one person shop, um, a mom and pop shop, you know, um, somebody who is an independent contractor. And of course, there are going to be delays there. Um, and, you know, there, there's no real system in place for it is first come first serve as announced. But, you know, there's no real system in place for what that means and what that means for people who didn't get to submit their applications yesterday. So, you know, I do know that there were a lot of people who who did submit their applications. Um, but, you know, $349 billion, that's that's something that is like unfathomable unfathomable and something that, you know, I, I haven't even quite wrapped my head around that amount of money well, I, <laughs> and, I, and what it could I do. think it's going to be nothing. There's going to be a lot more. There's going to have to be a lot more coming for that, I think. But, oh, yeah. you know, even on a larger level, getting those checks out is be- been very difficult. I, you know, we haven't seen checks yet. And the people who are going to get their money first are the people who already have tax, electronic tax or electronic banking information on file with the IRS and have had the file returns and that sort of thing. So the people who are going to get that first are almost certainly the people who need it the least. And the people who need it the most, the people who don't have that information on file or haven't filed, those are the, the people who need it the most. And it's going to take the longest to get to work with those people and get them the checks. And then there's the unemployment claims, which have, you know, what we're, we're talking around 10 million or so. And those are just the filed yeah. claims. State unemployment offices are completely overwhelmed. And even though there was a billion dollars in federal aid given to these unemployment offices, the, the money's great. 
but the money can't create those, can't create the people and the systems to handle that volume instantly. And again, that goes back to my, my initial point. We're just not set up for something like this. And so what's going to happen is the people who are in most need of this assistance right away are the people who are going to have to wait the longest to get them. And that's just, that's just tragic, you know? Yeah. The, I read 10, there were 10 million jobless claims filed within a two week span. Yeah. And it's and really it, it's, more and, than that because there are plenty yeah. of people who just can't, you hear stories about people, you know, waiting for like a day on hold and systems just crashing. So the real number is certainly higher than that. Oh, sure. Yeah. And and I'm sure, you know, there are people who, um, ha who maybe lost their jobs this week. Maybe they're taking a day or two. I know somebody who falls into that category. She lost her job. Um, a lot of people are, have been furloughed. And so those are people that we're counting a lot of people haven't been furloughed yet. They know it's coming. Um, you know, a lot of people, especially people who work in the service industries and medical offices, those people are going to get furloughed. So this is something that, again, like, you know, it's it's changing the it's changing at a mind blowing speed. Um, our culture, the economy, um, you know, we had this incredible three point five unemployment in February. I mean, that's like almost doubled at this point. I think I read the last statistic I read was six point six. I don't know if, if you read something similar but well, that was yeah i've heard that in the washington that, yeah, post that probably yeah. the real unemployment level right now is is somewhere around 13 percent yeah which yeah. is i mean know, it's 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 wild how, yeah. how quickly this happened i mean and and it's funny because when i just on a personal level when i think to when all this began it feels like it was months ago it feels like you know just because the days drag on and we're all social distancing and you know things really the days are feel very very long and you know when i when i think back to the fact that this has really only been for the last two weeks i mean i've We've been, uh, you know, relegated to our house for three. But, you know, when I when I think about, um, for example, uh, my husband not being able to go to his office, it's been two weeks. Things shut really shutting down lockdown orders and stuff. It's been two weeks. And, and so all of this has has really happened in the last two weeks, uh, maybe three. And that's just you and, know, yeah. the impacts are devastating. And, and the reason for this, I think, at least to think about the financial impacts. The reason why 45 states have shelter-in-place orders, the reason why we've basically frozen our economy in place, this all goes back to a dramatic failure of testing. Because the only reason we have to, everyone, everyone has to stay in is because we don't know who who has who has COVID-19 and who doesn't. And we don't have the testing capacity to be able to determine that on any, you know, on any big level. And so until, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've been getting all these questions of when will this end sort of thing. Yeah. Well, you no, know, absent an actual vaccine, which we're talking like what's late summer of 2021, yeah. which is, you know, that's a long ways off. Then it's all about testing. And if you take a look, even, even, you know, I looked just yesterday, you know, South Korea is at like one test for every roughly 122 people. Germany's at much better. One test for like around every 83 people. Right now, we're at the United States, one test for around every 260 Americans. And that's just, that's just not nearly good enough anywhere close to, you know, um, to give you a sense of this, I mean, we're doing, we're kind of, we kind of stalled out at a little over a hundred thousand tests a day. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Obviously there are supply chain reasons. You need people to give the test, you need swabs and all that mm -hmm. other kind of thing. But 
to get to even just where we get to say 10% of Americans have been tested around, you know, 30 something million people, even if we can ramp almost double testing per day, we're looking at like six months. And so this is, you know, people who think, well, we're going to be able to be unlocked down in beginning of May or something like that. I, I think that's a little overly optimistic unless we can really ramp up the testing and start, you know, getting a better sense of where this is going. And to me, in this front, maybe one of the more promising things that I'm hoping we can find a way to do more of is that uh, what's called pool testing. And for people who aren't mm -hmm. familiar with that, it's where you basically break people into groups and uh, there are various estimates as to what the best size is, 10, 20, 100. And you take two samples from everyone. Then for one sample, you pull all the samples in and do one test. And if that test is negative, then everyone in that sample is negative. And that's a huge, you, you eliminate a huge swath right there, depending on the number. And if not, then you just individually test all in the group. So it ends up being one more test than you would have done otherwise if you had tested every single person in the group. And so I think, you know, we're still not at the point where even everyone who is symptomatic can necessarily get tested. So we're, we're a ways from that. I know Germany's looking at more pool testing and things like that. But we really have a ways to go. And until we have a good sense of a really good sense of who, you know, who has it and who doesn't, we're just not going to be able to open up major parts of the economy again. And that's that's why I think, for instance, on the small business thing that, you know, four weeks, I think the, the loans are designed to cover four weeks of uh, of inactivity. Uh, that's, I read eight. Oh, eight weeks. Eight. Sorry. Right. Yeah, yeah, two months. I, I don't think that's going to do it. I think there's going to have to be an extension on that for sure. So. Um, to me, I think the best, most honest thing that policymakers and politicians can tell Americans is that things will not be anywhere close to back to normal until at least the summer of 2021. And that assumes that everything goes perfectly with the vaccine development and rollout. And that is not necessarily a, a done deal sort of thing because we've never done this before for you know coronaviruses. And but they can also say that as we do enhance our ability to, you know, to test, do contract tracing and, and that sort of thing and isolate, we'll gradually be able to resume semi-regular activity, but probably not, you know, mass sporting events and concerts and things like that. So it's, I think it's really important to, you know, give people a sense that this is going to be a long haul sort of thing. And I'm I'm disappointed that we're not getting enough of that, I feel, from the very top. Yeah, I I um I wanted to I wrote down the name of an article I wanted to um point out to to the listeners if they haven't already found it. So there's this great Hill article that I just I pinned it on my work computer and every day I check it. This the everything is you know the tables are evolving constantly, but it's the name of the article is um here's when the coronavirus will peak in your state. And I'm sort of like going off of that because it, it changes a little bit from day to day. Um, it's based on the University of Washington's uh, research on on this topic. And um, the the truth is sobering with this because, um, you know, to start with, when, when all of this began, I remember thinking, well, you know, um, you know, what, what I'm hearing um, at press conferences, what I'm hearing from people in Congress, you know, what I'm hearing from my local officials um, here in South Florida is, you know, 15 days. And of course, that was what President Trump was saying, you know, let's try to get things moving along. Let's stay at home for 15 days. And of course, that was extended this week um, for through the end of April. And it's going to be extended again. 
again after that. But, um, you know, like, for example, in the state of Florida, the, the peak of infection is supposed to be May 3rd. And of course, you know, I'm trying to be rosy. I'm trying to be sunny. I'm trying to, you know, keep the spirits of my family up. And I'm saying, well, you know, we just we have to deal with this through April. But it, that's not going to happen. And so, you know, checking this article, at, at you know, I, I think it helps put things in perspective. It's realistic. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I I. I think at least through late April, May, I mean, there are a lot of states that will be peaking in May, um, which was alarming to me for some reason. Uh, you know, I was thinking April um, for a long time. These projections were, were showing that April was going to be the peak times, but now May. Um, and of course, there are hot spots that are that are popping up constantly. Um, New Orleans has become a hot spot. A lot of people predict or, or, or believe that that has something to do with Mardi Gras. I know um, our governor here in Florida, Governor DeSantis, was saying saying that um, he believes and a lot of uh, public health officials in Florida believe that the Super Bowl um, was kind of a, the, the start of a lot of the spread of this in, in South Florida. And it's part of the problem uh, of why, you know, we're a hotspot here in Broward County. Miami has become a hotspot. So these these large public events, which, you know, in, in these places where a lot of people congregate, I think it's going to fundamentally change our culture and, and it's going to sort of... Um, produce, I don't want to say a, a generation of introverts, but I think it's going to make a lot of us think twice about going to places where there are these large congregate, you know, congregated groups of people. I was watching, uh, I was watching a, a, a news show and they were interviewing um, John Taffer, who does the, the bar rescue. Do you know who he is? I do John know. Taffer? Yeah, he's so he's I, I'm a big fan of his and I'm sure some of our listeners know he basically um, goes and he, he's like a bar fixer he goes in and kind of does like restaurant rescue type stuff but for bars and he's you know he understands bar science he's a businessman and he was being interviewed on on i can't remember what station it was uh, but he was being interviewed and he was saying you know this is going to affect the way we look at you know things like going to bars and restaurants um people sitting close together um if a bar or a restaurant looks full maybe we're going to start second guessing it and that and that sort of mentality of social distancing and this uh idea that you know, maybe we'll become a little more introverted. Maybe we'll become a little more skeptical about gatherings and, and these large events, parades, you know, sporting events, games, things like that. Um, that's not going to go away anytime soon. And, you know, I think it has its pros and its cons, but I wanted to bring that up because it's it's a really interesting cultural phenomenon yeah. that I think we'll probably see. I don't want to I don't want to make the, that prediction, but I, I do think that we're going to see more of that happening because we're just I mean, you know, old habits die hard. Yeah, I, and right I, now we are we're fearful of other people, which is crazy to think. But but, you know, this is where we are. Yeah, I, I, I disagree with that, actually. I think really? that while that's going to be a short term thing, I think people are going to very quickly go back into old gathering habits. There'll be a there'll be a small segment of people who won't. And that's my concern, because after this first wave of this fades, hopefully by mid to late summer, you know, there's certainly a lot of experts who are saying that there's a high probability of a second wave coming yeah. in the fall. And I think at that point, a lot of people are going to be just so stir crazy. And a lot of these orders are going to be lifted and things are going to be opening up of, from some would say from economic necessity. And we're going to see these gatherings and we're going to see more infections because I think people just 
many people just have that natural desire to gather in large groups and they're going to convince themselves, especially when it's something that you cannot see or feel or, or taste or touch like a virus that they're going to be okay. And we certainly saw that, you know, early on, obviously with the, you know, the spring breakers and that sort of thing. So in a way, I hope you're right, but I, I, I don't think so. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about was the, uh, you mentioned the states scram- still scrambling and uh, outbidding each other for supplies. Yes. You know, yeah. this week, uh, supposedly on a conference call to, or on a, uh, a discussion, yeah, everything's a conference call these days or a Zoom meeting, <laughs> with Connecticut's congressional delegation, the FEMA administrators told them that 20% of government orders supplies were going to go to re- replenish the strategic stockpile, which I get. But then of the remaining 80%, only half would be directed to states and they were going to let half just be open to bidding on the open market, which I just think is just inconceivable to me. I mean, during normal times, absolutely. I agree that markets are generally speaking 90 something times out of a hundred, the way to go. But if that is true, I just think that's, that's just nuts. I mean, I, I guess that's a, that's a strong word, but it seems to me this is the time. And, and President Trump has started to invoke the Defense Production Act a little more. He just did it with 3M and mask production. Mm-hmm. But but I think where it really needs to come into play is through that uh, buying, you know, government being the sole purchaser of these things and not putting them out on the market, but allocating them based on the best data we have for needs. Because, hey, there could be an out big outbreak in, say, Denver or something like that. But right now, I haven't looked at the map, but right now, Denver compared to, say, Newark or, or you know, New York City, well, that's not where they need the respirators. And so, you know, I think we really need to have that that done by a centralized authority. And, you know, I, I'm not crazy about that as a general rule, but I think under this circumstance, absolutely that's what needs to happen. And so I certainly hope that President Trump will invoke that authority, which I think he should have done probably about three weeks or more ago. And I'm very disappointed that hasn't happened at this point. Well, he has he's been talking about this more and more. I've heard some some language and some heated exchanges with the with the press um, about this. One one thing that what you just mentioned made me think of is um, in the last couple of days, um, uh, Andrew Cuomo has has really taken a lot of heat in New York for using some of this language. I know a lot of the media has accused him of wanting to uh, the word they're using, I think, is seize. I've heard the word confiscate used, too, but seize uh, medical devices and PPE, this uh, personal protective equipment um, for the for the sake of the state and then sort of doling that out to harder hit areas like like New York City. And so there seems to be this backlash, especially in, in the media. I've seen it both both on, you know, right leaning media and left leaning media about um, seizing this equipment and sort of redistributing this equipment. Um, and he, you know, went on the record defending himself. I think it was yesterday he was defending himself, saying, you know, this is it's not a seizure. What this is is equipment sharing. And so now this has presented a whole new situation where, you know, who who ultimately has the authority to do this? Is this something that 
that should be state by state? Should governors be, um, you know, sort of looking out for the entire state? Should this be up to local authorities? What about, uh, you know, private charity hospitals and things like that? How do they factor into this? Nonprofits, um, independent contractors. So, and of course, you know, the, the, the role of the president factors into all of this. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is an ongoing thing. And, and I, I predict, <laughs> not that I can really predict much with all of this, but I predict that this is going to be a hot issue in this coming week. So we'll probably be discussing this in the future yeah, and uh, just, on this show. And just to be clear, I think there are two distinct but related things here. And the first is uh, the actual production of these things. And under the Defense Production Act, the president does have the authority to basically mm-hmm. buy up everything that's being produced in these areas and then dole it out. That That's a different thing from uh, from sharing or seizing, whatever word you want to use, already produced and purchased things. And that is a that is definitely a much greater and more questionable infringement on property rights. And so I, I don't think anyone should take that, you know, should take that lightly. But as as Governor Cuomo has you know pointed out that these are incredibly desperate times. And when, say, a hospital in some place, uh, you know, has a respirator that is not is actually not being used. And when there are people who are dying because there are respirators that they need, well, that's that's a pretty compelling reason for uh I guess you could call it forced sharing, but that raises, you know, a bunch of other obviously very serious, very serious issues, certainly, you know. Right. And and it, all of this calls to mind um, the, the well, I think he's great. Or I think he was great. Charles Krauthammer. Um, he used to talk about um, this idea of like seizing and, and, and forced orders and things like that. And, um, you know, it was brought up. I I watch somebody talk about it yesterday on Fox News. And then um, somebody, I think, in Politico uh, referenced the statement he made when the uh, Ebola, there was a, sm- a small Ebola outbreak. I think that was in, was it 2014, 2015, something like that? Right. Um, maybe 2016. A few years ago, there was this Ebola outbreak. And um, he, he had made a statement um Basically, what he was alluding to is the fact that, yeah, it's it's wrong to keep people at, at home. It's wrong to seize things and to, to confiscate things and, and do these things. It's wrong. It's a, you know, in terms of personal liberty, it's a disaster. I mean, can you just, you know, you, you just you can almost see Rand Paul with his head in his hands and Thomas Massey with his head in his hands, you know, and, and those of us that tend to be more liberty minded to, to that extent. are really conflicted with all of this. But, you know, then he said there are certain circumstances where this stuff is necessary. And so the the question is, how far do we move the needle to, you know, one way or the other? And I think this is one of those scenarios, like I, like I said, I predict that this is going to be a hot topic, but I know in Florida, we've had, we've had a lot of problems with it. A lot of uh, local officials, especially here in Broward County and South Florida have been on national news channel uh, stations um, on cable news talking about the problems that they've had trying to get respirators because um, as a lot of people know Broward County in Florida this is sort of the epicenter um, and in Fort Lauderdale Hollywood stuff like that we have a huge population of elderly and infirmed people and not to mention the fact that we have a lot of people who are who were here for the winter season and they've just decided to stay um, and so you know we've had all sorts of things going on here that are unprecedented uh, you know police officers um, doing these these uh, almost like checks on people coming into Broward County County on the roads on our, our major interstate systems are stopping people and turning them away, almost like there's this invisible border, um, you know. And so a lot of uh, people here in Broward County, a lot of public health officials and elected officials have become increasingly frustrated. And it's been this rare moment of again, like bipartisan 
unity on this is that, you know, we can't get what we need here. And there are probably hospitals elsewhere in, in the state of Florida that have these respirators and are being used that have this PPE that's not being utilized. Um, and so, you know, I, I think a lot of us who tend to be more personal, uh, you know, oriented in terms of liberty um, are, are questioning that for the first time. And it, I don't know, it's making me a little uncomfortable, yeah. frankly. <laughs> well, which is interesting because Florida, uh, there have been you know, reports that Florida has basically gotten everything it's asked for from the federal government, whereas other states have gotten uh, less. And the reasoning yeah. has not necessarily been all that transparent, though some people have pointed out that uh, the president and Governor DeSantis are, are pretty good friends, are in regular contact. Yeah, and of course, that Florida is the biggest swing state in the upcoming elections. And that some, I mean, certainly we, we can't, we don't know. And that's part of the problem is that the process, this, that's going to be the problem with any process that's not based on ability to pay is that what are the decision criteria? Well, you know, FEMA uh, and agencies say, well, it's about population and projected need and things like that. And, and certainly Florida is a big state with a lot of projected need, I think in part because the governor unconscionably waited as long as he did to issue a statewide stay-at-home order, which I think is just just horrific. But anyway, he finally did. Uh, so, you know, there's that as well. And you know, the other issue we didn't talk about was the mask issue. Now, there's mm. two parts of this. Number one, President Trump uh, invoked the Defense Production Act to basically tell 3M that, hey, those those masks you are making overseas and, you know, distributing, you need to send those here and not to sell those overseas. And that's a little bit different than telling a company that's making something in the United States to you know, that that we get to buy it all up and you can't you can't ship it overseas you can't export it and there are some people who are concerned that well this sort of order might actually backfire and that's what 3M in in my understanding it says listen you do this and you might actually have there be fewer masks and and PPE coming into the country because other states or other countries are going to retaliate. And given the fact that so much of this protective equipment is made overseas by non-American companies, this could actually have a cumulatively overall negative effect. And of course, you know, I, I hope they're wrong and I, I hope the president's advisors, you know, took that into consideration, but that certainly is a, is a possibility. Yeah, I just on a personal note, um, you know, it's it's funny because for the last few weeks, um, I live very close to a, a, a big hospital here in South Florida, Cleveland Clinic, actually. And um, it's one of the testing sites, one of the major testing sites in the west part of my county. And of course, like, uh, you know, we live close to another testing site. And, and the only thing we've really been able to do is like drive around on, on major roads and keep our windows closed just to beat the boredom um, and get out of the house. So, you know, we've been doing that. And one of the things that I've that I've noticed is, um, you know, there seems to be for the last few weeks anyway, there seems to have been this push away from masks, that the masks don't necessarily stop the disease. The science isn't there. These aren't facts. And, and of course, we're hearing this on a lot of different fronts. The media is talking about this. Elected officials are talking about this. Um, I mean, I've even seen like PSAs on TV that talk about the fact that washing hands is more effective than mask wearing, which, which you know, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yet when you drive past these, you know, testing facilities, everybody has on a mask. When I go out um, and, you know, uh, we're driving around or even when I'm walking around my neighborhood, everybody's wearing a mask. So about a week ago, I started wondering, you know, how 
correct is this information? And do we even really know, which kind of goes back to everything we've been talking about. The, the, the fluidity of the situation is something we, you know, most of us have never experienced. So now there seems to be this push towards masks. I know I was telling you earlier that I went on YouTube and looked up ways to make these, these face masks without sewing because I can't sew to save my life. So, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting. If, if, you, if you need masks, they're just not available. Um, yeah. I, I know just, just to see, because I figured we would talk about this just to see earlier this morning, I went on Google and I just started, you know, Googling masks and Amazon and most of them, you know, won't even ship to your house until yeah. June. And then at that point, what good is it? So, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. it's, it's uh, this whole mask thing is is baffling. And I don't know if we're going to if, if there will be, you know, conflicting information on that. Well, in I think week. I think it's it seems to me that it's not perfectly clear, but clear enough that masks can potentially help, at least by if you are if you uh, are a carrier and are asymptomatic, then. Yeah. You're, you're going to be less likely to be able to spread it. And so it's good in that way. And, you know, we know that the, the main way that people seem to get this is through it, it coming in through, you know, eyes, nose and mouth and that sort of thing. So if you at least partially even cover those openings, then it's going to make it at least marginally less likely. So it's one of those things where it probably can't hurt unless people then feel this false sense of security. But I think actually most people, when they see everyone around with a mask, just feel like they want to stay even further away. So it it certainly marginally can help. And, you know, people who are able to make these masks, I'm, you know, I'm thankful my mother-in-law can sew and she's great at it. And she sent some masks out that she made to to myself and, and Kimberly, and that's great. And we'll be, we'll be wearing those. But you know, what What sort of disappointed me, and I use that word a lot in regards to the president, is that when he made that announcement this week, late, late this week, this was an opportunity. This was a golden opportunity for a real leader to drive home the seriousness, and that would be by making that announcement in a homemade cloth mask. He totally could have done that. All of a sudden, all uh, those people across the country, and there are millions of them, I mean, I've talked to some of them who've said, you know, this isn't really a thing, not here, not anything like that. They see the president, their president, you know, you know what I mean in that sense, with a mask on, all of a sudden it's a holy shit moment. And then people start taking this very seriously. And I think, you know, you and I are taking it seriously, but there are plenty of people who still aren't. And I was talking to someone uh, who did some, you know, work for the house. She said, you know, I, I, uh, I'm the only one in the office who seems to take this seriously. Everyone's, everyone else says I'm crazy. I'm like, well, this is the problem. And so this was a great opportunity for the president to show some leadership, some real leadership. And yeah, he would have looked a little silly and that's why he didn't do it. I'm sure. And that's just incredibly disappointing. Every time I think that this man cannot disappoint me more. You know, he is, as I said last week, regardless of what you think about his policies, temperamentally, he, I cannot think of a worse person to be president of the United States in this situation. I, I would, I, I would give, I, I would, I would give everything for not everything. I would give a lot to have like George, George W. Bush, I think would be orders of magnitude better in this situation, you know, a Richard Nixon orders of magnitude better <laughs> in this situation, pretty much anyone you can think of, but this guy, God. So by that token, if, if we're talking about the optics of mask wearing, what about everybody, all of our elected officials sort of coming together on this and, and yeah. doing this? Because, you know, for for two months, um, I 
remember Dr. Fauci coming on TV and saying, oh, this is something we don't have to worry about. We don't need to worry about this. This is something that's relegated to other countries. You know, I listened to, you know, of, of course, you know, Donald Trump and his administration saying, listen, um, you know, we have to keep the economy running. And this is something, you know, we don't need to worry about this right now. But I also heard people on the left. Nancy Pelosi was visiting Chinatown in San Francisco and saying the same thing. We, we're open for business. Visit Chinatown, you know, and, and, and across the board in my state of Florida, you know, from the top, Governor DeSantis, my local officials who are mostly Democrats were saying the same thing. We're open for business. And and, um, you know, part of the the, the failure, I, I think, or, or most of the failure kind of lies in both camps. And wouldn't it be great to take that a step further and say, why don't we all wear masks when we appear because what's what's happening and this is something I haven't heard talked about hardly at all. I heard it mentioned maybe a week ago, but you're the first person who's mentioned it, at least, you know, in my experience in the last week. Um, you know, I'm I'm watching the news, um, and you know, of course that most newscasters on, on most of the major cable stations are broadcasting from their homes, these, you know, live broadcasts and they're interviewing people who are also at home. Um, but then, you know, you have uh people who are working in government positions, elected officials who are out in about um, who are you know, walking the streets. Some of them, um, you know, up until about a week ago were, you know, outside the Capitol building, still in Washington, D.C. and not home with their families. So, you know, I, I, it's, it's hard for any of us to take this seriously, um, you know, unless we see all of government sort of focusing on this united effort. And it is all about optics. I understand the struggle that they must be going through where it's like, well, you know, do we do we try to appear strong and resolute um, or do we risk looking stupid? And I, I think what what you what you said kind of call, calls that to mind. Like they, right now, this looks pretty stupid for them to go up to a podium without a mask on. You know, people, uh, some a local official of uh, here in Broward County just got in trouble for making this big statement about stay at home and then uh, rubbing uh, his hand on the side of his face. I mean, it just the optics are like out of control. Terrible. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. And I think both parties could do more. But in the end, Nancy Pelosi is not president of the United States and that the president of the United States is the symbol of the country. And to uh, the biggest swath of people who are not taking this as seriously as they should, he has a special relationship with those people. And so that there is no image. There is no image that is going to that would bring home the seriousness, even if he just did it for a second of the image of President Donald J. Trump in a mask. That that is a, that, that is the most powerful image that we would get of the seriousness of this. And so I, I would think even just for a moment, he would it would be a true act of leadership for the president to put on a mask and to have himself photographed in that mask because that that would have some strong emotional resonance. And I I, I doubt he'll ever do it. in fact he went the other way so well i'm not going to do it you know that's that is that is just trumpian irresponsibility just what, what what sadly i've come to expect from him all right so uh do we have time to move along to one more topic you know or? i think we i think we do actually uh okay yeah let's do that okay so uh should we talk about wisconsin yeah yeah i, I think that's next speaking of irresponsibility uh, yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, so um, so we'll focus for a minute instead of focusing on the country as a whole, we'll focus on one state where there's a primary coming up this Tuesday, um, and that is Wisconsin. So um, in Wisconsin, elected officials and judges are sort of at loggerheads over how this coming Tuesday's primary will proceed. Um, the issue is centered on uh, the controversy over mail-in voting. So that seems to be the source for all this, of course. Um, it and, and the question here is, is the risk of coronavirus greater than the risk of possible voter fraud, which is what a lot of people on the right are uh, upset about. And will we see this play out in other states, I think, is the bigger question. You know, as we move through this process, as, you know, primaries continue, um, as we get closer to election time, is this something that we're going to have to address on a larger scale? We've seen some states, um, you know, uh, postpone the primaries or extend the deadlines for primaries, but it seems to be particularly uh, marked in, in Wisconsin now because because uh, most of the people on the left, as as you know, and probably a lot of our listeners know, are saying, no, you know, let's we can't risk coronavirus. Let's do mail in voting. A lot of people on the right. And there are, of course, reasons for this are saying, no, this is an opportunity for voter fraud. So I don't know. How do you feel about that? Oh, I think that <laughs> I, think I know how you feel about I that. I think the Wisconsin legislature is just incredibly irresponsible. This is this is just this is disgraceful. I think, you know, earlier on, the the governor asked the legislature to uh, to send mail ballots to all registered voters. He asked them to lift the photo ID requirements for mail-in voters, asked them to extend in-person early voting through the final weekend before the election, and asked them to move back deadlines for returning absentee ballots as well as move back the deadlines for counting them. Now, even if you're a big vote fraud person, and that's a whole other issue, which is it's not a thing, but even if you say it's a thing, say, okay, well, I could understand the legislature saying, you know what, we're not going to lift the photo ID requirement. We think that's really important. But given what's going on, the legislature saying, um, no, we're not going to do the mail. We're not going to send out the mail, mail out the ballots. We're not going to extend early voting. Uh, we're not going to move back the deadlines for returning ballots and counting them. That there's no good reason for that. that's not an integrity of elections. That's a that's BS. And that is that is I hope the voters of Wisconsin let the legislature know what they think about. It. I hope they think it's important enough because, of course, yeah, the presidential primary, that's that's not a thing that's essentially decided at this point. But there are other races as well. Mm -hmm. And particularly there's one, I believe, state judge race that the party judge is, race, yeah. is very concerned about. And that that's just that blows my mind. That, that being said, I agree with the federal judge's decision where he said, you know, it's not my role to postpone elections. Yeah. I think this is a horrible decision, but I am not I am not the public health official or anything, you know, or anything like that. Right. But and, and so but the judge did put in certain uh, in his rulings. He extended the deadline for absentee ballots. Uh, he extended the deadline for uh, ballots to be. Uh, received by uh, local officials, I think, to April 13th. And he also prohibited that state requirement that say that uh, that envelopes, absentee envelopes have to have that witness signature. And, you know, that, that's when the, the party was saying, well, you can just have the mailman look through your window or something like that. You know, it's ridiculous stuff like that. And even those, I think, very reasonable conditions that the judge put on, well, the the Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Republican Party is appealing that. So that's just that's just no, we can't have that. And that yeah, that's oh, the sort of thing that I think is just unconscionable, really. 
Yeah, I, I was, uh, I actually, I, I agree with you um, on a lot of what you said. So I, I was going to point out what the, what the judge said, the judge's ruling that, that, you know, this is a terrible idea, but, you know, I, I really don't have a place in this argument. I can't necessarily call off a primary election, uh, a, pr- a primary vote um, for something like this. This isn't my, this isn't in my purview. Um, and I agreed with that. Um, and I think that that, that that's, that was the correct response, but kind of taking it a step further, I, I I wouldn't necessarily call myself a voter fraud person. There are people who are, you know, much more up in arms about that than I am. I do think uh, I do think that it happens. I think it happens more frequently with mail in voting. I think it's easier to um, kind of rig the system. Um, And and I you know, it's it's funny because I say that not necessarily as a Republican, but just as somebody who's concerned about uh, the democratic process in general. You know, I, I think it is we especially in my county, I'm thinking of things that have gone on here in Broward County. We've had a lot of problems with mail-in votes. I know in, in 2018, we had problems with boxes of mail-in votes being found. I mean, in Florida, we just seem to have a lot of these issues in general and in Broward County. So I guess it's just something that's always lurking in the back of my mind, just as a concerned citizen. But that being said, um, I I agree with you that I think that the legislature is, is making a, a, a terrible decision uh, here. And I think that this is one of those situations like, you know, what Charles Krauthammer was referencing long ago. Um, one of these situations where there are, you know, circumstances that call for, you know, a new way of doing things. Other states have followed suit. Other states have extended the deadline. Um, they've, you know, encouraged mail-in votes. I don't think that Wisconsin, just in terms of the public health scenario, like you said, has a choice in this matter. Um, and, and you know, Republicans who are interested in holding this, you know, these this vote on on Tuesday, I think that they are using this as an opportunity, a political opportunity. Both parties do it and the Republicans are doing it here. They're taking advantage of this opportunity. They shouldn't. Um, yeah. And, and it's you know, it's it's concerning because it, it seems like other states have, you know, made concessions that needed to be made. But Wisconsin, it's it's such a problem. And I'm interested to see how that plays out as we get closer to the 2020 election. Um, you know, if if this is going to this is a situation that's going to be duplicated, um, you know, if this is going to change the way we do things, I, you know, I, I don't know that it will in, in the future in future elections. But certainly for this year, the way that we approach this the way, we even think about logistically how we're going to be rolling this out and how people are going to be voting has got to change um, because of this. So, yeah, I mean, all eyes are on Wisconsin. I'm interested to see what happens on Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. And and it can't be done. You know, Oregon's been doing mail voting for, I think, 20 years or more now. Yeah. And uh, so it's not like we don't have any very good models for that sort of thing. And I agree with you. You know, while I disagree with some of the uh, long-term implications you were suggesting earlier for how people might change in terms of social distancing, I do think we're going to see a, a longer-term change in much more availability of uh, of no excuse or almost entirely even in some cases, maybe vote-by-mail systems. And I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, before we get to our weekly recommendation, we've spent this entire episode talking about COVID-19 related things. Of course we have. I mean, it's what everyone's thinking about. But I've also been wondering, are there any things that people feel that we're maybe not covering or under covering in these discussions? And I asked that question in our bipartisan politics Reddit group, and I got some great suggestions and answers so much so that I thought this would be a really good thing to do for an entire special episode, things that you feel 
we're not giving enough attention to, or maybe we could focus a little more on, and already I've gotten some good things. So if you have an idea or suggestion, there are a lot of ways you can let us know. You can pass along those ideas through email, mail at politicsguys.com. You can post a comment in our bipartisan politics groups on, on Reddit. I started a topic there called gaps in our COVID-19 coverage just for that purpose. Or you can post a comment on our Facebook page comment section for the post that we'll have up with this episode. So a lot of ways to do that. So we had some great topics yeah. going, in, you know, on a list that we didn't even get. Oh, to my them. God. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this Ex is the juggernaut. So, I mean, I, I hope I hope next week's show we get to some of these great topics because there are some good ones going on that are not COVID-19 related. Definitely. So uh, <laughs> recommendations, Kristen, what do you have for us this week? All right. So um, I've been doing a lot of reading. I know you are. I know <laughs> probably a lot of our listeners are. I know some of our hosts are. Um, so I have a, a recommendation for a book that I'm currently reading. And then I also have a documentary recommendation for those of you who love TV like I do. So the book I'm actually reading and I'm about halfway through it is called Dead Wake by Eric Larson, who, I mean, a lot of people know who Eric Larson is. Um, he's a nonfiction writer, very famous nonfiction writer, best-selling author, journalist. Um, he does all nonfiction. He wrote Isaac Storm, which is great. Um, he wrote uh, The Splendid in the Vile, which is about Winston Churchill, Devil in the White City. A lot of people have probably read that. So I'm reading Dead Wake, which is about the sinking of the Lusitania during World War One, And I, I, um, I, I think it's such a an interesting account of everything that happened. It's something I didn't know a lot about. It. I remember, you know, hearing about the Lusitania and, you know, AP history you know, back in high school and, you know, maybe referenced a couple of times in history classes in college, but it's not something we normally think about. And, um, you know, I, I recommend just about anything Eric Larson writes. He's such an amazing writer. Cool. So it's it's good. There's there's some element of escapism. It, it's a it's a it's a good story to read right now i think it's it's captivating it's compelling um and just very well done he's a he's a good storyteller and the other recommendation i have is actually a a documentary that i watched with my kids um although it's you know it's it's family friendly but you know it's not necessarily for kids it's available on prime uh, amazon prime and it's called antarctica a year on ice and i don't know that i've ever said this on the show but i'm i have this weird rabbit hole fascination with antarctica huh. i don't know why i <laughs> It's it's like that in Chernobyl. <laughs> I just have these weird fascinations yeah. with weird things. But Antarctica is one of those places. I think it's just so different from what I'm used to. I mean, I've lived my whole life in the American South and South Florida. And so the, 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 this weird fascination with Antarctica came a couple of years ago, actually listening to a, a, a science podcast episode. And so this, I highly recommend this documentary. It's not very long, uh, maybe um, an hour and a half, um, but it's very compelling. Um, the, the documentarian who's from New Zealand actually um, has lived in Antarctica for years, but he decided to live there for one full year. That's summer and winter. And the winters are brutal there. Um, and just ca capture everything on on camera. And so I've just I've never really seen anything like it. The camera work is really well done. Um, it's actually funny in some parts. Some of the people who live there, you're around the scientists and other people who work there talk about how normal it is, which kind of blew my mind. So, yeah, I recommend both of those both like good escapes for everything going on right now. What about you? <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll recommend a couple of escapist things as well. I already mentioned my, my book in progress saying link will be there on the uh, show notes. Uh, another show. 
that my wife and I just absolutely love is a show called Puppy Prep on Hulu. <laughs> and it's the story of, I think, five or six young dogs who go through uh, service dog training school. And it is just the most adorable, heartwarming thing I've seen in a long time. So that is great. And then finally, uh, what I would call a rationally optimistic blog post from a guy named, uh, not named, this isn't his real name, Mr. Money Mustache. Uh, and he's sort of, <laughs> he's a, it's a pseudonym. He's the, leading figure, I would say, in the FIRE movement, which is financial independence, retire early. And it's a blog post called, No, You Didn't Just Lose Half of Your Retirement Savings. Um, and, and even if you don't plan on retiring early or you're already retired or what have you, he's worth checking out, especially on this. And one of the conclusions he comes to and is that what we're doing right now in the United States is essentially foregoing about a million dollars of economic activity for each person's life that we extend. And he says, you know, I think that's a great and compassionate thing, and it makes him very happy. Now, I think the number might be more like 1.5 or maybe even 2 million, but still, the point still holds, and the whole post is definitely worth reading, especially if you need a shot of economic coronavirus, COVID-19-related optimism. Definitely check that out. I will. All right. All right. <laughs> now, again, great. all that will be in our show notes. And that does do it for this show. But, Kristen, as you said, we had a lot of stuff we didn't cover, and we are going to get to as much of it as we can in our midweek supporters show. We wanted to talk about, you know, uh, gun stores closing and abortion clinics closing and the people who are filing lawsuits about that during this uh, during this crisis i think that's just a, a really fascinating interplay of you know rights out liberties versus security in this case and both the right and the left so i know we'll get into that uh and one thing that's been buried this week largely has been the new report by the uh, Justice Department's Inspector General mm -hmm. that basically said that, well, pretty much every single FISA warrant that the FBI submitted was junk and not junk, but had pretty major problems. Close. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's a huge issue as well. And we haven't yet even talked about the, what's going on with Venezuela and our efforts well, to, you yeah. know, new efforts to oust uh, Maduro there. And God, they have a huge problem as well for a lot of reasons. So we're going to get to as much of that as we can on the Wednesday uh, supporters exclusive show. And if you want to hear that, well, if you're a supporter, already be in your feed by well by wednesday actually but if you're not and you want to become a supporter patreon.com slash politics guys and i just got to say uh that we have we have had you know a bunch of people supporting the show in the last few weeks and it means a lot especially during this this stressful and difficult and uncertain time so thank you all so much and also Please remember, if you can't afford to become a supporter, we get it. We want to make sure we can get all that content to you. So just email me, MikeAtPoliticsGuys.com, and I will get you set up. All right. If you have a question, comment, correction, just want to say, hey, you can do that, mail at politicsguys.com. And also, I keep on mentioning our bipartisan politics subreddit. It is great. Check it out. Uh, you can search for it at Reddit or the show note or the uh, the link will be in our show notes. And finally, we have a Facebook page where we post stuff, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we are on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show is produced by Chris Matheny and me, Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us. <laughs>